Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello, and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. We're your hosts, Dimitri and Etienne, and today we're interviewing Brett Chedzoy. Brett is a forester working for the Cornell Cooperative Extension, as well as the owner and manager of Angus Glenn's farm in New York State and a large ranch in Argentina. It's been a while now that Etienne and I wanted to get into silvopasture. We haven't had an episode focused only on this yet. And today, Brett gave us um, an amazing interview to get started because he really provide, he provided a really good overview of the differences between uh, standard rotational grazing on pasture and rotational grazing on, in a silvopasture system. And he's going to uh, talk about his experience in two very different uh, contexts, both in Argentina and in New York State in the USA, which um, provides a really, really interesting overview of silvopasture for, um, for people that just want to get started in understanding what are the basic concepts. So we do also go in a bit of depth, um, but um, this is really a, um, a big picture overview of some of the key concepts. So we hope you enjoy it. So Brett, uh, welcome to the podcast. And um, yeah, maybe you could start by just uh, telling us um, a bit about how you got into silver pasture and the story of your farm. Very good. My experience with silver pasturing started almost 30 years ago. I worked as a forester in central Argentina in the early 1990s and had the good fortune to work with some large cattle ranchers who were also foresters and they were doing large afforestation projects in the Sierra Mountains of central Argentina. So as a young forester, that was really my first exposure to civil pasturing and opened my eyes to the beneficial aspects of grazing livestock together on forested landscapes. You mentioned to me that you have two farms and uh, how, how did you bring that back, that journey to the U.S. then? So I worked much of the 1990s in South America and in 1994, when my wife Maria and I were married, we purchased our own ranch in the Sierra Mountains in Argentina. Uh, Maria's, her family are farmers in central Argentina. And I really fell in love with that whole region. So in 2002, we moved back to where I grew up in central New York in the Watkins Glen area, which is part of New York's Finger Lakes region. And our family farm had been a dairy up until the early 1980s, but much of the time that I was gone, it sat being used by another farm that was leasing the tillable acreage on the farm. 
when we settled back here, we wanted to do something that would be enjoyable and profitable and grazing livestock seemed to be the best fit for our farm. Could you tell us a bit about your local context, uh, both in terms of uh, your climate and also your markets for your produce? Sure. So the farms both here in New York and in Argentina, are they, they have obviously some similarities, but some big differences as well. Interestingly, though, it rains about the same amount at both of the farms. So both here in New York and in Argentina, we get about 40 inches of rainfall a year. But that rainfall in Argentina is more seasonal in nature, and it comes in very heavy rainstorms typically. So one of the big benefits of the civil pasturing in Argentina is that the trees really help to buffer the heavy rainfall events and reduce the amount of runoff and flash flooding and allow more of that precious moisture to infiltrate into the soil. We raise black Angus cattle at both of the farms. And in Argentina, it's much more of a commodity market where we market our yearling animals into the, usually it's, it's, private sales to other farm operations that will then finish those animals as grass-fed beef. Here in New York, we also sell most of our yearlings to other finishing farms. And so I guess the cattle would look very similar in both locations, but the landscape and the types of trees growing on the two different farms are quite different. And so yourself, you're kind of uh, traveling uh, frequently between uh, Argentina and uh, New York State? I don't travel as frequently as I would like to to Argentina. Mm. We try to make it there once a year. Our children are now in college or beyond, so they have more flexibility to spend time there than we do. We hope to start spending about half of our year in Argentina here in maybe another five years when my wife and I are semi-retired. So Brett, um, what we wanted to understand with you today is already have an overview of silvopasture, uh, some of its opportunities and challenges, and really understand the interaction between the different elements. Uh, by that, I mean between uh, the forestry aspect and also um the the animal aspect and you know if that's okay with you maybe we can start by looking at the impact uh, that animals have on the forest when you make the decision to include them um, in a in a forest um, you know I, I know that uh, sometimes this has bad reputation that people think that um, including animals uh, will actually damage the forest could you give us a bit more information on on that aspect the whole key behind civil pasturing is that we are grazing the animals in a way that doesn't cause short-term or long-term harm to the trees or any of the other resources like the soil. And 
intensive rotational grazing is really a, a fundamental part of any successful civil pasturing system. And that's what allows us to minimize or completely eliminate any of the negative impacts that were traditionally associated with woodland grazing. Here in the northeastern United States, such as New York, we had a long history of teaching farmers to not graze their livestock in wooded areas. And that was because our small family dairy farms and livestock farms were often treating their farm woodlots as sacrifice paddocks on the farm. And when you allow livestock, especially heavy livestock like cattle, to access a natural woodlands for weeks or months at a time, year after year after year, in other words, there's really no rotation or period of rest and recovery, over time that will start to negatively affect the trees. And here in upstate New York, we have the most viable hardwood forest in the world. We grow walnut and cherry and maple and ash and oak, woods that are widely exported to the rest of the world. So if we cause damage to these high-value trees or damage their root system or compact the soil, and cause uh, decline in the tree's health and quality, that can have some very significant economic impacts. It's a little different than where civil pasturing is widely practiced in other parts of the United States, such as the southeastern or western parts of the United States, or where our ranch is in central Argentina. Those are primarily conifer forests, and conifers are, are not only lower in value on a per tree or per ton basis, so there's still economic loss, but it may not be as significant as when you have a loss of a high value, say, oak tree that might be worth hundreds of dollars versus a pine tree that might be worth only a few dollars. Pines, however, are also on the higher range in terms of resistance to some of the potential impacts from livestock grazing. They have deep root systems and are often associated with soils and sites where compaction may be an issue or lower fertility may be an issue. But the message I'd like to share is that civil pasturing can be done in any forest type with any kind of trees. It's just a matter of managing the grazing in a way that doesn't cause uh, a long-term uh, decline in the value and health and vigor of those trees. And you, you just mentioned that uh, coniferous trees uh, are more resistant to compaction. Uh, is it, you know, how does that occur? Is it just in general coniferous trees are more resistant and uh, deciduous trees are less? Or could you give us an idea of the of the different resistance of different trees in silver pasture systems? The 
if you look where these different tree species and tree types, such as hardwoods versus conifers, naturally occur, you start to see a pattern. And there are some tree species, and, and I'll talk about the tree species that I know here in New York. So we often associate species like maple and birch and ash with our best quality fertile sites. Then on the lower quality sites where you have more rock, maybe lower fertility, maybe uh, uh, more shallow soil, that's where you start to see other hardwood species like the oaks dominate, but also we have some native pine species that also thrive in those kinds of sites. And so when you're thinking about what trees to promote in your silvo pasture, you first have to understand what the inherent site quality is of that silvo pasture and work with species that seem to be better suited for that given site. Uh, diversity is good. I like to maintain as many different species of trees as possible in our silvo pasture, but I want to favor trees that seem to be best suited for any given portion of our silvo pasture. Nice. That's, uh, that's fascinating. Um, just to, to go one step back um, on the compaction uh, that you talked about, or the let's say the damage of the animals in the trees, what, what are the, the, the key things to watch out for? Um, you, you mentioned compaction, but is that, is that the main one, the most important one, or are there others as well? The issues that can be associated with overgrazing or poorly managed grazing in civil pasture areas would include soil compaction, physical damage to the trees, and in some cases, animals eating young trees that are part of the regeneration system. However, regeneration is something that is if foresters, we, we think of regeneration as an event in the life cycle of a forest. So we often don't worry about animals browsing or eating young trees if we're still decades away from needing to recruit new young trees to make the next generation of forests. That's a, that's a silvicultural principle that I don't really want to go into today, but Compaction and physical damage, such as girdling trees or chewing the bark off trees or damaging the shallow feeder roots on trees, those are all those are all avoidable issues through proper grazing management. And if you think about a rotational grazing system where animals are constantly on the move, and where we have the ability to put animals in the right spot at the right time, we there's really no reason why we should see compaction or damage to the trees in our civil pasture system. Compaction is really going to be a reflection of having animals there far too long. And 
in in the rotational grazing that we do with silvopasture management, the animals are being moved frequently. Uh, in some cases, daily, maybe even uh, multiple times a day, but probably at least once a week. And that's also what really eliminates the issue of animals damaging trees because when we leave animals too long in any given spot, bored and restless animals become destructive animals. So if animals are being continuously moved to to fresh pasture and fresh forages and browse, they will do what they should be doing, which is grazing and eating. They won't be looking to go and start trying to chew the bark off of our Mm. trees because they just were bored. And humans behave the same way. When we're bored, we start crumpling up papers or... Or Chewing bark off trees as well. It happens to me sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, that's great. So it's very similar to um, it's very similar to rotational intensive rotational grazing on pasture, um, and I'd be curious to know more about how it differentiates itself to pasture intensive rotational grazing. So, again, silvopasturing and intensive rotational grazing are, in my opinion, synonymous. We we can't really be talking about civil pasturing without talking about intensively managed rotational grazing. And it's interesting you ask how they might differ. I think with the one area where they might differ is here in New York, for example, and it's not the same all across the world, but we definitely have wet rainy seasons where we can have saturated soil conditions and typically what we do in our treeless pastures is we speed up the rotation deer when the soil conditions are really wet because we don't want to leave the animals there too long where they're starting to compact the soil and really uh puncture into the soil surface. In civil pastures, on the other hand, where we have to also be thinking about the fine tree roots that won't recover as quickly and as well as grass roots, we may want to just simply keep animals out of our civil pastures when the ground conditions are really poor. In some situations, we don't have a choice, but we like to save our civil pastures for periods of the grazing season when the ground conditions are quite dry and firm versus okay. like early spring or late fall where the ground conditions are going to be saturated and soft. So you would say that the, that the, um, the tree or the silver pastoral system is more sensitive than a, a simple pasture system in general? I think a silver pasture system has, I, I don't believe saying that 
it's more sensitive is quite the way I would phrase it because I really think civil pastures in many ways are more resilient and robust than treeless pastures. But there are, for, we, we have to always be thinking about how the grazing is going to affect the trees. And if we have to go in there and graze in less than ideal conditions when the ground is soft and the animals may be punching things up a little bit and uh, perhaps damaging the shallow feeder roots of the trees, trees can recover fine from a uh, short-term or short-lived or an, an acute stress like that. But if we do it frequently or continuously, the trees are very long-lived and resilient organisms. So we might really beat up on our trees for years and years, even decades, before we see the symptoms of that. But once we see that we pushed it too far and that we really did damage, lasting damage to our trees, we can't reverse that. Mm. So in a, in a open pasture or a treeless pasture, if we really beat up on our, on our grass and our forbs, we can usually undo that harm that we caused by letting it rest longer or reseeding it or, uh, possibly fertilizing it or delaying the next time the animals graze it. But if we start to see decline in the health of our trees that are part of our civil pastures, it's it's too late. The damage is done and there really is no practical fix to that. And when you think about the decades, many decades it might take to establish new trees in there, that's that's a mistake that you have to live with for a long time. <laughs> it's a very costly mistake. Um, but you mentioned now that you, you, in your opinion, the the civil pasture system is uh, is more resilient uh, than a pasture system, and I'd love to 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 know a bit more about that. The reason I say that I believe civil pastures are in many ways more resilient than treeless pastures is that, well. I'll, I'll point out some examples that come to mind in the context of our farms here in New York and in Argentina. The trees certainly add plant diversity to the grazing system. And along with that plant diversity comes soil microbial diversity. We also have these large plants called trees that might handle weather extremes such as droughts better than our small plants like the grasses and forbs. Mm -hmm. But I feel that silvo pastures have a high degree of, I think of it as biomimicry. It's, uh, these are grazing systems that simulate uh, natural savanna-like ecosystems, and they don't require a lot of energy input to maintain. Uh, trees naturally want to grow in this part of the world, and in many areas where we graze 
forest is just part of the natural vegetative landscape. So instead of spending a lot of energy trying to keep the woody plants from growing back into our pastures, I think of civil pasturing as a way of just working with those woody plants that want to naturally occur in our pastures. Brett, I'm I'm curious to understand, um, you know, obviously you need some flexibility to be able to uh, bring the animals in at some point and then exclude them from uh, silver pasture at other points. Uh, so how much uh, out of your total acreage, how much do you have of kind of straight pasture and how much do you have uh, in silver pasture? So on our farm here in New York, we our farm is about half silver pasture and half open pasture. We're grazing a total of almost 500 acres. And so half of that is silvo pasture. And our long-term goal though, is to have the entire 500 acres look like silvo pasture. Some of it is going to be plantation silvo pasture where we planted the trees into pasture and other portions of it is where we've taken a naturally existing woods or forest and thinned it out and managed it in a way that we could grow forages underneath it as well. So, and I, and I think that those two directions of civil pasturing exist all across the world. Uh, by contrast, though, and where our ranch is in Argentina, even though that's a high rainfall area of receiving about a thousand millimeters of rain a year. Uh, the Argentines like to joke that God gave them great soil and climate and uh, moisture, but then forgot to put the trees there. So they almost <laughs> saw it as like their duty to finish the job and incorporate large afforestations into these natural rangelands. And I think of it as a real win-win situation there. Uh, it certainly changed the appearance of the landscape to see forest where there really wasn't forest before, but it's it's been so beneficial both from an environmental standpoint and also a, a social and economic development standpoint. Um, actually, I was curious. It's, it's really interesting what you, you're telling us, um, but I'm wondering... You don't see the need uh, to then keep some part of your farm as a straight pasture. I'm thinking of some objections sometimes. Uh, you know, I, I remember uh, hearing some objections to silver pasture in the sense that having trees makes it harder to cut hay and to dry it kind of homogeneously. And uh, yeah, I'm just wondering if, if you would see any, any point in keeping uh, full pasture to have that diversity of ecosystems and, and um, use it for managing the cattle. I feel that there's always good reasons and benefits to keeping a little bit of everything on a farm ecosystem. And you're right in that if we were trying to produce hay in the same civil pasture areas, the trees would be a bit of an impediment. Our Much of our hay production to feed our animals in the wintertime is done on lease land. And we just happen to lease that land from neighbors that have no interest in alley cropping or 
silvo pasturing or putting any trees into their hay fields and, and that's fine with us but here in upstate new york we really farm in the forest so we have trees uh, two-thirds of new york state is covered by forest land so our agricultural land is really the minority of the landscape but in in terms of the the grazing which is the focus of what we do on both of our farms we feel that the civil pastures give us the greatest good for every acre of land versus managing it as simply as woods or as treeless pasture. So, and if we manage our civil pastures well, I feel that we can still be getting largely the same benefits in terms of plant diversity and richness and wildlife habitat, but we're in essence layering multiple beneficial production systems on top of each other. So we have a productive forest growing together with a productive pasture and then the animals are able to utilize uh, both the the trees and the forages, primarily the forages, but our animals do browse in our civil pasture systems as well. The, the, the animals benefit even more so, though, from the trees, just from the shelter and the shade that they get. And if you look at any grazing animal, it doesn't matter if it's black cattle like ours or white sheep or goats, any time it's much above 70 degrees Fahrenheit or about 22 degrees Celsius, the animals are seeking out shade. So just watch what your animals do in warmer weather and you quickly quickly realize that civil pastures are providing those animals with what they really want, which is to get out of the hot sun and be comfortable. Well, actually, um, you know, this is the, the, the next set of questions is really trying to understand the benefits from the perspective of the animals. But before we go there, I, I kind of wanted to conclude uh, this section on, on trees and um, the, the sections where you are planting trees into pasture. What kind of spacing are you using? We've planted extensively both on both farms here in New York and in central Argentina. And the spacing and the design of the planting really depends on the species that you're planting, but also on the uh, site quality and also thinking about the eventual uses or markets for the trees that you're planting. To give you an example, here in New York, we typically plant at a much tighter spacing, probably something less than three by three meters on average. And that's because we feel that we will have the opportunity to go in and harvest those trees at a fairly young age or small size to start thinning out these young plantations and Giving planting more trees initially per hectare gives us more options in terms of 
nurturing and selecting and leaving the best trees. On our ranch in Argentina, uh, four by four meter spacing is about the minimum spacing that we would use now. And that's be, that's for two reasons primarily. One is that there are no markets that allow us to go in and profitably thin out young plantations. So we want to delay that thinning as long as possible in hopes that we can do it when we can at least break even by mm. selling the trees that are being initially thinned out. With thinning, we use the term thinning in forestry the same as like a gardener would use the term weeding. So when I say thinning, I'm talking about really weeding out the young forest that we've created. Yeah. And the other reason, though, that we have a fairly wide spacing when we're planting these uh, mostly pine mixtures in central Argentina is because pine is uh, a, a sun-loving tree species, and it really... The, the growth of it can slow down very quickly if it starts to get too crowded amongst itself. So we want to plant it at a nice wide spacing. The pine species that we're using there are ones that come largely from the southeastern United States, like slash and loblolly pine, uh, Pinus elioti and Pinus uh, taida. And those trees don't need a lot of competition or crowding to grow nice and straight and prune their lower branches naturally. Whereas uh, many hardwood species like oak, for example, or walnut that you would commonly see in civil pasture plantings, if we don't plant them with enough density, they, they want to grow like a big bushy tree and we would have to invest a lot of time and money into correctively pruning those trees and that's actually um that's one of my questions is what kind of impact can you expect on uh, tree growth and quality um when you include animals in the management of your forest and by that i mean both by uh thinning an existing woods and including in forestry practices and also when you're planting out trees in silver pasture systems in the pasture the livestock play a essential role in both our New York and our Argentine civil pastures. In Argentina, the greatest risk to our trees there is fire in the wintertime. The, even though we get a thousand millimeters of rain, that rain comes from spring through fall. And then we have a very notable dry period in the winter and fire is the the constant uh challenge and if it wasn't for the grazing animals that go in there and eat a lot of the grass and control the fuel loads the fire risk would be much greater here in new york our biggest challenge are the non-native so-called invasive species. And every time there's a disturbance in our woods or our civil pasture, whether it's a human-caused disturbance, like we went in there and thinned trees out or weeded trees out, or it's a, a naturally occurring disturbance, such as a windstorm 
blew some of the trees down or a non-native pest, like currently we're losing all of our ash trees in this area because of a non-native pest called emerald ash borer. But anytime there's this disturbance and more sunlight reaches the ground level, plants start to grow. And it's not just grasses and clover and baby oak trees. It's grasses and clover and lots of stuff that we really don't want overrunning the landscape, like multiflora rose or European buckthorn is another very common problematic species here, but we have native species as well that can just overtake an area if not managed. So the livestock in both of those cases, though, is really our workforce that is helping us manage that vegetation to have a a healthier, more productive and lower risk system than if the animals were not there. I can imagine as well that uh, the the activation of the nutrient cycles, right, by with the manure that there is that also accelerating somehow. Um... That's an interesting question. I believe that there is the, in a well managed civil pasture, there's going to be a symbiosis between the animals the forages, and the trees, an area that's probably very understudied is this nutrient cycling between the livestock and the plants. Uh, Any grazing animal needs three crucial things to survive. They need food, they need water, and they need minerals. And I've read that a good portion of the minerals that are being given to livestock are passed through the livestock. And so there's no doubt that there's going to be some importing of minerals and nutrients just through that grazing. To what extent those minerals and nutrients actually benefit the trees. I'm not aware of any studies, at least not here in New York or Argentina, where they've looked at that. But I think over time, you're going going to see an increase in soil health. So I, I think of civil pasturing as a very regenerative system. And that's certainly the case for us in... Argentina, where the trees are providing a huge amount of organic matter input to the soils in a relatively short period of time. And that organic matter is a big part of what uh, helps um, increase the capacity for the soil to retain that moisture that we get in those hard summer storms and allow it to infiltrate. Okay. Very interesting. Um, there's so many things that we, we would love to go in more depth about on basically every sentence that you say. Uh, and that's not really possible because uh, it would just uh, be a 25-hour podcast. Um, but um, what we wanted to go back to what Etienne had mentioned earlier on, which is the, or to move on to what Etienne had mentioned, which is looking more about you know, how the animals behave uh, and looking more at the animal aspects inside the civil pasture system. 
And you started um, talking about it a bit um, when you mentioned, you know, the behavior of the animals when they are stressed, for example, and they attack the, or they eat the bark of the trees, creating damage. So, in a in a more general way, um, how do how do cattle how does cattle behavior change when it's put inside a civil pasture uh, system as compared to a simple a pasture system, for example? <sighs> I'm trying to think of animal behavior is really that much different in a open pasture versus a civil pasture. I think the first thing you notice, though, is that animals seek out the plants that appeal to them. And it may not be really a conscious effort to seek out those plants. Uh, grazing animals have strong sensory feedback systems. So Often when we move our animals into a fresh civil pasture area, which is pretty much every day on the farm here in New York, the first five to 10 minutes, many of the animals spend browsing woody plants. It might be low-hanging tree branches. It might be shrubs. It might be a, a rose bush. But it might be young tree seedlings that are trying to come up. But there's something in that woody browse that those animals are craving. I don't know what it is. I don't think the animals know what it is, but it it's probably minerals and nutrients that are less available in the grass and forbs. And then after maybe a few minutes of that, then the animals turn their attention towards grazing the other plants, the herbaceous plants or the forage plants. And they often then go back after a while and, and eat a little bit more browse. So the animals have this very strong, innate ability to seek out whatever is best for their needs. And that's something that civil pastures offer, offer very well is uh, just that wider variety of plants that they can choose and select from. Uh, another thing, though, that we see in our civil pastures in both ends of the world is that the animals, they have fairly uniform shade. It's, it's ideally light shade because we still need enough dappled sunlight or filtered sunlight reaching the ground to productively grow forage plants. But the animals are uh, comfortable grazing throughout that entire pasture area because it's shaded throughout. Whereas when we turn the animals into one of our pastures that does not have trees or only has trees along the edge, they'll eat for a little while, but then they're either clumping together, trying to seek uh, some protection from each other for flies, or they're trying to seek out the little bit of shade that there might be on the edge of the pasture. So you get less uh, clumping together of the animals or congregation of the animals in civil pasture areas. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, and do you, you, you mentioned, um, so um, we would call it um, tree fodder as we usually hear about it when they're eating um, from, when they're browsing um, from the perennial plants that are around. Um, do you have techniques to make those more available? Uh, for example, you know, in the in the peak of the summer, um, when the grasses are, are a bit less 
vigorous? Um, do you come in and do you, do you manage the forest in a way to make available some of the leaves of the of the various trees there, for example? Fodder systems are prevalent throughout the entire grazing world. We do not use much on either of our civil pasturing operations in New York or Argentina for the simple reason that we don't have a lot of extra time. So I think fodder, I think of fodder systems as fairly management intensive, fairly time intensive, Mm -hmm. because you have to be out there pruning trees or managing the trees for that fodder. And we let the animals do the work for themselves. So uh, now one exception to that was this past summer, we had a historic drought here in New York. We received only about a quarter of the normal rainfall uh, from late spring till early fall that we would normally receive. And as a result of that, our pastures were much less productive than normal. So towards the end of the summer, where the pasture was really struggling to keep up with the rotation, we decided that we were going to cut a bunch of the small trees, trees that we had intended to gradually thin out of our civil pastures anyhow. Uh, The last major thinning that we did in our civil pastures was in 2015, so five years ago. And in that five-year period, the trees continued to grow and the sunlight levels at the ground level where we need it, need that sunlight to grow forage had continued to diminish. So it was, we were due to do another thinning in our civil pastures and the drought became the perfect opportunity to do that thinning because we went out every day and spent an hour cutting small trees. But when I say small trees, I'm not talking about nice young trees with high potential for the future. I'm talking about the uh, suppressed trees, the slow-growing trees, the defective trees, the uh, trees that needed to be called out. And by cutting um, maybe somewhere between 50 and 150 of these small trees every day, it not only supplemented the cattle with something green and nutritious, but it also gave them something to do and help take the pressure off the other forage plants. Okay. Um, and just to, to, to clarify, um, outside of this context, the, the plants that they're browsing on are just the brush and the young seedlings that are the regrowth that's, 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 that's low and that's available, right? No, no, not. Uh, so what they're normally grazing on the civil pasture would be herbaceous plants, so grasses and forbs. There are woody plants scattered in, in beyond the trees. There's woody. There are woody plants scattered throughout our civil pastures. Some are shrubs, some are invasive shrubs, some are seedlings or saplings, that's to say young trees, but the majority of the uh, forage base is in the form of herbaceous plants. And uh, talking about these um, herbaceous plants, 
I was wondering how do they differ from the ones in open pasture? Because I, I assume you've been able to observe uh, differences both in terms of the types of forages that develop in the shade and maybe in terms of quantity and quality as well. That's a good observation. And, you know, the tricky part of doing this when I'm talking about two really different types of civil pasture and two really different parts of the world is that uh, you get a different answer for both of our farms. So the what we observe growing in our civil pastures here in New York is similar to what we would see in the treeless pastures, but most of our forage plants here in New York are what we call cool season forages. They grow very well in May and September. That's to say late spring and early fall. That's where almost all the annual growth of those plants occur. So these same plants grow very little, if at all, during the hot summer period. Under the civil pastures, we see the same cool season forages, but they tend to behave a little differently in that they often start growing um, about the same time in the spring, but they continue growing later into the early summer. And I would attribute that to it just simply being cooler, moister, shadier in the civil pastures. Uh, the studies that have been done in this part of the world show that the ground temperatures average about 10 to 15 degrees Fahrenheit cooler at the soil surface in a civil pasture versus in a treeless pasture. And that makes sense. Um, likewise, those same cool season forages will often start to grow a little, grow back a little bit earlier in the summer as long as they haven't run out of moisture. And so I think we're extending both the spring and the fall growth period for our cool season forages by probably two to three weeks um, in both of those periods in our civil pastures. And that um, is what offsets possibly slightly lower overall growth of those same forages simply because they're growing in less sunlight. However, many cool season forages grow better in light shade than they do in full sun. So in Argentina and our civil pastures there, what we've noticed over the years is a transition from what I call wire grasses or bunch grasses. And these are small, very coarse, high silica type grasses that can tolerate the hot exposed conditions in soil that has very low organic matter. And under the pine civil pastures, though, the, the grasses and forbs that start to dominate our broad season grasses and in some some are cool season grasses others are just broadleaf warm season grasses the many of the warm season grasses though tend to have a lower degree of shade tolerance than cool season grasses i'm wondering um 
does the uh, increase in terms of growth later in the season when they're benefiting from uh, shade and cool, uh, is that offset by the fact that they might start growing uh, slower at the beginning of the season be- for the exact same reasons that the soil might take a longer time to warm up? I don't think the spring growth period starts any later in our silvo pastures. And that's because these grasses are normally starting to grow well before the tree leaves come out. So I really don't think that the trees are keeping the soil that much cooler in the early to mid spring period when the the forage plants are starting to wake up. It's not really until they leaf out that they're uh, having any appreciable effect on the soil temperature. I have not closely compared the green up period between the silvo pastures and the open pastures, but I would say that they're just about the same. And some of that, if there's any difference though, it would be mostly just because you might encounter some plants growing in the silvo pastures that green up early, um, plants that might not be as prevalent out in the open pastures. And it's just, there are, there's largely an overlap in the grass and forb species, but there are some that seem to be uh, more common in the silvo pastures. I wanted to know if uh, you had um, maybe measured um, bricks levels in uh, the forages for similar plants um, that are underneath the trees, uh, vs. underneath the pasture. I would be curious to know if there's like a difference in in their in their in their sugar content, for example, because that's uh, from what I understand. We don't graze animals on our farm, but um, um, this is something that um, graziers um, uh, measure quite often to to measure the quality of their pasture. So I'm not aware of anybody who has compared bricks levels from civil pasture forages to open pasture forages. I think you're right in that you might see slightly lower bricks levels in the light shade of civil pastures, but mm-hmm. I, I've never read or heard anybody who has taken the time to compare. We do not measure our, the bricks levels in our forages because we just do the best management possible and it is what it is. So Mm, likewise, we don't measure, we don't test our hay quality. We just go out and try to harvest and grow the best hay that we can to feed our cattle in the winter and testing it um, would give us useful information, but it isn't going to change the quality of our hay. I was going to ask a, a question a bit along the same lines, but you might not have the answer and that's totally okay. But I remember reading that um, some crops um, had a higher protein level when they were uh, growing in partial shade. And uh, I'm wondering if if some studies have come out showing that uh, quality is higher in in terms of protein for forages growing in partial shade. Yeah, so forage quality is not my area of expertise, but you're right in that light shade can boost crude protein levels in some forage plants. I don't believe it's a uniform reaction amongst all forage plants. But the other way that 
shade can affect forage quality is that uh, heat stress can lignify many many forage plants. So uh, I've heard experts on forage quality say that there's less lignification and greater digestibility in forages that are growing in lightly shaded silvo pastures. But I have no data or personal experience of my own to really say that that's true. Okay. Yeah. We were, we were curious uh, to find out um, how basically what are the, the, the skills and um, also the type of equipment um, that a farmer um, or a rancher needs in order to shift from um, um, grazing animals on pasture to um, grazing animals in in a civil pasture system or in a, or in a wood. So the grazing skills are the most important, and I would expect any livestock farmer to be able to develop the necessary grazing skills to manage their civil pastures well. The uh, forestry skills and knowledge, that's something that it's useful to have, a basic understanding of how trees grow and forestry principles. But in many areas, you can find forestry experts. We call them consulting foresters, and they that's what they do. They, they're there to help you figure out how to achieve uh, your objectives with regards to your woods. So when we think of civil pasturing as taking an existing plantation or natural existing woods and uh, managing it in a way or thinning out trees to develop it into a productive civil pasture, that could be a very daunting task if you don't uh, feel comfortable with woodlot management or, or forest management. In that case, mm-hmm. I would seek out a local expert or professional and utilize the expertise of that forester to get that part of the project done and done well. Okay. Um, and are there like different types of equipment that um, that we need to use for for example I'm, I'm thinking of the of moving fencing for example in in, in rotational grazing uh, that's one of the big challenges on pasture and I can just imagine it being even more challenging in a forest uh, context so setting up and moving fencing in an open pasture is challenging enough and it's even more so in civil pastures, not only because of the more limited access, but anybody who uses portable fencing like ElectroNet realizes that ElectroNet likes to catch on or snag on every little tree and branch and stump. So ElectroNet is an awesome tool for grazing many livestock species, especially the more difficult to control species like pigs or goats or sheep. 
and all, all livestock species can be very useful in civil pastures. But one of the reasons that we raise primarily cattle in our civil pastures is that they're very easy to contain or keep fenced in with single strands of electrified fence. If we were going to go back to raising sheep and goats, we used to raise a lot of sheep and goats on our farm or expand our pig production, we would probably be using electronet fencing and electronet. If I if I had to put up electronet in my civil pastures, I would have dedicated alleyways or trails where we set that fence up because I'm not going to try to set up electronet in a brushy, woody civil pasture. Brett, could you give us a bit of a comparison um, between, uh, you know, a normal rotational um, grazing and, and pasture and in silver pasture, especially on the elements of stocking density and the timing of moving them around? In both of our silver pastures and open pastures, we try to periodically graze at a very high density, and that might only be during one rotation or part of a rotation every grazing season. And the reason that we do so goes back to what I was saying earlier about using livestock impact as your main tool to grow, to manage the vegetation in a civil pasture area. Uh, If I don't graze at a high enough density in my open pastures and they become very weedy or we start to see an encroachment of woody plants. We can go out there with machinery or chemicals or some other method and correct that. It's much more difficult to do so in civil pastures because we can't go out there and just readily mow or reseed. So, but achieving high density in civil pastures is more challenging than in open pastures because animals tend to avoid all of the little objects that are in the way, the trees, the stumps, the tree branches, the shrubs. So in, in order to get about the same impact in, the, in a treeless pasture versus a civil pasture, you would actually have to have a much higher density. And consequently, Here in New York, we've come to accept that we often cannot get a high enough density to control the really noxious and problematic plants in our civil pastures during the growing portion of the year, the the green portion of the year. So what we try to do there is utilize our rotational bale grazing in the winter to target those Uh, undesirable plants. And a a very common example on our farm are the invasive blackberries and the multiflora rose. So we like to uh, put round bales in the center of those patches of soft brush. And a friend of mine, uh, another forester, an agroforester by the name of Joe Orifice, calls them bale bombs. And I think that's a great image where you're putting this round bale that then draws maybe up to a couple dozen hungry cows to stand around it for hours at a time devouring that uh, 400-kilo round bale. And you're creating well over a million pounds per acre of density 
for that period of time, which is much higher than we can achieve even through the best intensive rotational grazing in the summertime. So it's, it's just a, a way of um, using something that we had to be doing anyhow, which is feeding hay to our cows during the, the four months of winter that we have to feed hay and doing it in a way that it um, helps improve our civil pastures. The other nice thing about feeding the hay in our civil pastures when the ground is frozen, we try to stay out of there if things are soft and muddy, is that every place where we feed a bale of hay, we're importing nutrients and seed and organic matter. And that in turn helps create a new patch of nice lush grass. And that grass will also help keep the undesirable woody plants from coming back in in that spot. So to give you a personal illustration from the farm in New York, we, across the 500 acres, we have about 130 permanent paddocks. And so if the animals are moving daily, that's on paper about a four-month rest and recovery period. So the animals are only grazing on any given acre of our farm or any given paddock just a handful of times throughout the entire grazing season. And having that many paddocks not only allows us to graze at a very high density, but it also gives us a lot of flexibility in terms of when we put animals where. So if mm. the animals are about to move into some civil pasture areas, but that happens to be the same week that we get very high rainfalls and the ground is very saturated, we can bounce them in a different direction and then maybe delay moving into that civil pasture till the ground conditions improve again. Okay. So in the summertime, we expect ground conditions to change very quickly. In the winter, where we are now, the the ground conditions change more slowly. Uh, there's periods where it freezes up, and then we have um, frozen ground, which is very resistant to compaction. But we might also have weeks of soft, muddy conditions. Brett, to kind of conclude this um, interview, would you mind giving us a bit of a step-by-step how-to of establishing a silver pasture system? When we're establishing silver pastures in areas where we already have trees, either trees that we planted or trees that nature put there for us, there's three steps. The first step is that we have to thin those trees out to allow a sufficient level of sunlight to reach the ground. And what we're doing there really is we're reallocating sunlight from all the trees that occur to just the best trees that occur. And the the great news about civil pasturing is that we can often be growing just as many good trees per hectare as if we were managing it strictly as a woods or for timber production. And uh, here in New York, and it's it's really about the same number as in Argentina, 
we're really trying to grow the best 30 to 50 trees per acre. So roughly the best uh, 100 or so trees per hectare. And But when we take out all of those lower quality trees and the slower growing trees, the runt trees, the suppressed trees, the defective trees, the diseased trees, then instead of uh, giving that sunlight to those uh, less desirable trees, we can then give it to the forage plants on the ground. So the first step is thinning out the woods to reallocate sunlight to the ground level. The second step is creating conditions so that forage plants will germinate in the civil pasture understory. And in order for that to happen, we have to be thinking about some soil scarification but not too much. We don't want deep rutting or mud, but we often need to have some soil scarification because many of our forage seeds will not germinate well if there's a thick layer of undecomposed pine needles or oak leaves on top of the soil surface. That's like having a mulch layer on top of the soil. So the the timing for going in and doing the thinning can be very important to make sure that we get adequate soil scarification. Uh, in, in a common situation that happens here in New York is that we do a lot of our forest thinning in the wintertime, often on frozen ground and on top of snow. And if that's the case, uh, when spring comes, we've thinned the woods out, but we still have that thick leaf layer, we call it a duff layer, and we're just not going to get good germination. Now, sometimes it helps to go in and do some sort of supplemental seeding, either just before harvesting or just after harvesting. It's often more easy to do it just before harvesting because now you don't have to contend with all the treetops or logging debris, we call that slash, that's in the way plus the logging activity can help incorporate that forage seed into the soil surface. Uh, but in many farm woodlots and plantations, there's already a good existing seed bank of desirable forage plants. So unless you really think that you need to, to augment that with some sort of broadcast seeding, I would try to rely in most cases on the on the uh, natural existing seed bank. The third and kind of final phase of the civil pasture establishment is that once you get all this green stuff growing in the civil pasture understory, we have to keep in mind that it's going to be a mix of the good stuff that we want to see growing there and the not so good stuff that is just taking advantage of this void that we've created and this increased sunlight. So this is where the intensive rotational grazing and the animal density and impact come in because we need to uh, graze that um, civil pasture understory in a way that we're either promoting the growth of the good stuff or we're discouraging the growth of the bad stuff. And a common example of how that's accomplished in, in the grazing world is through this mob grazing or high-density grazing where the animals 
are put into a paddock for a short period of time at a high density, the animals eat the best portion of what's there, but there's enough animals that they're trampling and smashing and knocking down all the other plants that they might not want to eat. And in other words, every time they go in, they kind of wipe the slate clean and set everything back to an equal footing. And uh, that sounds easier than it is to actually achieve, but any skilled grazer can get to the point where they can use their animal workforce to largely accomplish that um, through their rotational grazing system. And and then one of the natural steps that that we often think about is is allowing for um, um, forest regeneration, right? For the next generation of trees to to come in after harvest of the trees. Um, could you quickly comment on how that works in in a system that's so disturbed with uh, with um, by animal, um, you know, by the animals, by the cattle? Probably one of the most frequently asked questions anytime we talk about civil pasturing, especially to a non-forester audience, is what do you do about regenerating young trees? So a civil pasture is defined as a sustainable system. That's to say that we can perpetuate this balanced mix of trees and forages and livestock over time. It's not an area where we're just putting the animals in there to graze today until we get around to clearing all the trees off or the trees die of old age or some disease issue. It's not that the civil pasture is always going to look the same over time. These are dynamic systems. So in the early stages, we may have more trees and less forage and in a more mature civil pasture. It may look like more forage and less trees, or vice versa. But I made a comment earlier, and I, I'd like to go back to it, in that regeneration is an event in the life cycle of a forest. So many of the tree species that we would value in our civil pasture systems are sun-loving species. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're talking about pines and firs or oaks and maples or beech or whatever your tree, your chestnut trees, your walnut trees, your apple trees, almost all tree species need full sunlight conditions to develop beyond the seedling stage. Consequently, we're not going to grow the next generation of forest under the canopy of the current generation of forest. In forestry, we use what are called even age regeneration systems to establish a new age class of trees and then eventually recruit that young age class of trees up into be the next forest. And in our civil pastures, we feel that we're still decades away from needing to replace the current trees with new young trees. So in that uh, period of time until we need to regenerate, we don't really value having regeneration in the understory. If it happens, it happens. And in some cases, we may see opportunities to 
free up or release small patches of that regeneration so we can have this like mosaic of younger age classes starting to pop up across our entire civil pasture base. And the fences that keep our animals in our civil pastures today can also keep our animals out of our civil pastures tomorrow when we feel that there's a need to regenerate. But the bigger issue for regeneration in this part of the world is not the livestock, it's actually the white-tailed deer that browse to death all of the desirable young tree species that we would like to replace in our forest. Um, listen, um, Brett, I, I, I think we're going to um, take this interview um, to an end. And um, um, thank you so much for your generous time. I would like to know, um, because we've read a few of the documents that you shared with us, but I'd like to know if the audience could, uh, or where the audience could uh, get a hold of extra resources, extra reading, if they're interested in, in, in uh, you know, delving deeper into this topic. Sure. So it'd probably be easiest to email those to you, but if you'd like them on the recording, I can cover those really quickly. And uh, so we have a couple different resource websites for civil pasturing. One is we call it the Civil Pasture Forum. The URL is civilpasture.ning. That's N-I-N-G dot com. Uh, it's, it's a Ning forum. And this is a network of people interested in civil pasturing. We try to archive good articles and resource documents also on that forum. But the main purpose of the forum is to share personal experiences and ask questions and tap into other people's learning curves. The other resource website that we have for civil pasturing information is the Cornell University Cooperative Extension Forestry Extension website. The URL for that is Forest Connect. Dot info forestconnect.info and under the publications section you have to dig a little bit but there's a whole section on civil pasturing including the presentations from civil pasturing conferences in 2011 and 2014 there's also a link there to a number of civil pasturing webinars also documents that we feel would be useful for any civil pasture practitioner. Thank you so much to listening to this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. As always, all the links will be posted in the description below. And uh, again, um, please get in touch with us if there's any recommendations, any feedback or anybody you'd like us to interview. So don't hesitate. You can find all of the contact forms on our website. Thank you so much and see you next time.